If you have your Bible this morning or if you have your Mark journaling Bible, open up to Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 34 is what we're going to be reading this morning. And I want you to notice uh, immediately in verse 21, we're told that Jesus is coming and it's the Sabbath. That is, it would have been the Saturday uh, during that time. Saturday was the Sabbath for the Jewish religion. It was the last day of the week. And then you see in verse 32 that this section ends at sundown. So what we're about to read is one day. And really you can think about this is this is the first day in Jesus' ministry. This is the first day of the coming of the kingdom of God. So that's how we want to read this passage. Beginning in verse 21, we're going to read through verse 34. This is the word of God. And they went into Capernaum. That's they, that is uh, Jesus and his disciples that he called. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him, or told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, uh, a lot of us are familiar with these stories. A lot of us have heard them in the past. We, we know them. We've rehearsed them. But God, we do not want this to just be a familiar story. What we want this to be is a living word from you, from your lips, by your Holy Spirit, pointing to Jesus, your son. And God, I pray as Paul prayed to the Thessalonians that he knew that the gospel had come to them, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction because they turned from idols which led to death and they turned to you, the living God of the universe. God, would that be true of us this morning? God, would we know that we are chosen by you because this word that you bring to us this morning is not only words on a page, but it comes in power of your Holy Spirit and bringing full conviction. Would that be true of us this morning? God, we ask that in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior and King. Amen. If you're just joining us this morning, uh, we've seen in this book of Mark, it reads a lot like a biography. It's a biography of Jesus' life. And as a biography, Mark is quick to tell us that this biography is a gospel, meaning it's good news. And it's the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. 
And you can think of really the first three weeks that we've spent in this book. Mark was really laying a foundation before he launches in to what Jesus is about to do. So I've been working in my house this past weekend. We're putting in hardwood floors and I'm doing all the labor. I'm the pack mule of the family. And uh, when you lay down hardwood floors, the first thing you have to do is put this underlayment on. It's kind of this protective barrier that's a foundation for everything that goes on top. And you can think of what Mark has done in these first three weeks as the underlayment or the foundation of everything that's about to happen in his gospel. In week one, as Mark's laying this foundation, we learned this truth, this good news that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the Christ. He's the Son of God, meaning he is the eternal God of the universe, the Son of God who became man. But more than that, he's also the Christ, the Messiah. The Old Testament had always predicted that the true king of heaven and earth would one day come and visit earth and establish his reign on heaven and earth. So that's who Jesus is. It's the good news of the Son of God. Then in week two, we saw that Jesus was the better Adam. That Jesus is not just divine, but he's also human. And as the better Adam, Jesus lived for you the life that you could never live. Jesus is for you what you can never be for yourself, and he's created this new humanity through faith in him. Last week, we saw this good news that Jesus is calling disciples to himself. And we're going to see later on that as Jesus calls all these disciples, he's going to come to 12 inner disciples, 12 who are his core. And if you know the Old Testament, that number 12 is very significant, isn't it? That's the number of the tribes of Israel where God established the embodiment of his kingdom on earth in these 12 tribes. It's as if Mark is saying that Jesus, the true king of heaven and earth, is building a new kingdom. He's building the kingdom of God here on earth. Those are the foundational truths that Mark wants us to know, that God is building a kingdom through Jesus. So here's our question this morning. Our question this morning is this. What does it look like when the kingdom of God visits a world like ours? What does it look like when the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, visits a broken and dark world like us? And it shouldn't surprise us, look at verse 21, that the very first thing that Jesus does as the king is he begins to exert his authority. You see in verse 21 that Jesus is teaching in this synagogue. He's in Capernaum, which was his hometown. And we read that in verse 22, as he's teaching in this synagogue, that the people there listening to this teaching were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So you see, Jesus' hearers are astonished at his teaching because it comes with an authority that they just were unfamiliar with. And the center of teaching during Judaism during this time, it happened in two places. The first was in the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. And people would make pilgrimages up to Jerusalem. The Jewish people would go there. They'd make sacrifices to God. They would hear the law of God read. And that was the central place of worship. But throughout the Mediterranean world, there were these places called synagogues. You can think of them more like churches, right? There's not one central church. They're more... Uh, just churches around the Mediterranean world, and they were the local Jewish gathering place. What would happen is the Torah, the word of God, it would be read there, 
And it was a place where any faithful Jew would go and receive teaching and they would worship God on a week-in, week-out basis. And if you would go into one of these synagogues during the time, there would be a person there, typically a scribe or a layperson, but most likely a scribe. And this scribe was an expert in the Torah. They were an expert in the Bible. They didn't have Bibles like this. They had scrolls. But during that time, you know, a, a scribe would come up, he'd pull out a scroll, and he would start teaching various things about what the text said and how that applied to people's lives. And if scribes were around today, they would probably be considered something like professors or academics. They were well-respected teachers who would often be called rabbi, meaning great one. It was as if you were saying, hey, you know a lot. You're very wise. You're a great one. That's why when you see my kids come up to me, they call me rabbi all the time. <laughs> They're acknowledging you are the great one. Would you like a cup of coffee, great one? And I, I never demur. I always let them do it. But into this synagogue here in Capernaum, in the area of Galilee, here comes Jesus. And he comes teaching with one who has authority, not as the scribes. Did you see that? Not as the scribes. He has an authority in his teaching they had never heard before. Now, we know Jesus was absolutely brilliant intellectually. You, you capture this actually in the earliest times of his life. Jesus is 12 years old at this point in his life. When um, Not in the story we read. This is another story in the Gospel of Luke. But Jesus and his family go to the temple, as was their custom. They go there for Passover and they spend the week there. They do all the temple festivities. And then they're heading home. And about a day into their journey, they realize Jesus isn't here. So they head back to Jerusalem looking for him. And they find him in the temple after searching for him for three days. And we're told that he was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So Jesus has a brilliant intellect. That's an authority in and of itself, but that's not exactly what Mark's talking about when it says Jesus taught with authority. It's going beyond just mere intellectual brilliance, because after all, the scribes were pretty intellectually brilliant. So what does Mark mean by this? Well, you can get a sense of this in the way that Jesus preached. If you look at Jesus' most famous sermon, it's the Sermon on the Mount. It happens in Matthew chapter 5. Listen to how Jesus teaches here. You've heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell, a fire. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, all teachers before Jesus taught about God. They spoke about God. But here's the difference with Jesus. When Jesus teaches, he teaches as God. He speaks as God. You have heard it said, but I say to you, I am telling you this. Scribes during the time of Jesus, they taught based on a different 
method of authority. What they would do is they would reference rabbis in the past, people who were scribes before them. So they would say, you know, Rabbi Ben Joseph said this, Rabbi Ben Benjamin said this, and Rabbi Ben Azor said that. But Jesus comes, and when he speaks, he says, not have you heard it said, but he says, I say to you, I say it. I am the authority. I am the authoritative interpreter. I am the source of all truth. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody who has authority, like legitimate, true authority? I think of when I was in high school, I had to go to the courthouse and I had to face a judge for something I did. You can read about it in the papers. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. I mean, it was bad, but it wasn't that bad. So I'm standing before this judge and You know, I had had conversations about what I did with my parents, with my friends, with my coach, my baseball coach during the time, and they had a measure of authority. But when you're standing before somebody who not only knows about the law, but the power of the law is behind them, there's a little bit difference there in the way that you listen to that person, isn't there? You realize that this person has the full weight of authority and the full power of the law on their side. There's a level of authority that this man compels me to listen I was uh, in Chick-fil-A, this was some time ago, but I I saw this on full display. This little kid came into the play area where I was sitting, I was reading a book because my kids were playing in the play area. This little kid comes in and says, you know, Timmy, Susie, uh, mom, er, it's time to, you know, come eat. The the Chick-fil-A is ready. And the kid's like, no, we want to keep playing. So finally the little girl goes back. Then she comes back a little bit later and she says, mom says... It's time to eat, and immediately the kids come down, and they run out, right? Why did they do that? Because the mom is the one with authority. I tried this literally just yesterday. My wife and I, like I said, we're working on hardwood floors, and I tell our little Jane, she's about three years old, I tell Jane, Jane, go tell your brother and sister it's time for lunch. So they run downstairs, or she runs downstairs, she comes back up, and she says, no, they're playing a puzzle. And so I tell her, No, tell her dad says it's time for lunch. She goes downstairs and she comes back up and says, they said they're playing a puzzle. (laughs) That literally happened. And then the sermon illustration failed at that point. The point there, though, is this, that there are certain authorities that command us to listen. And in verse 22, you can hear the the, the way that they're receiving this authority in the synagogue. We're told that they were, quote, astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. That word astonished, it, it comes from the Greek word to strike. That's the root word, to strike down. They're struck by Jesus' teaching, not just intellectually, but to their heart, to their soul, to the core of their being. It makes an impression on them that's unlike any other. And now it's important to note Just because people were astonished at Jesus' teaching does not necessarily mean that they were receptive to it. You see this throughout the Gospel of Mark. We're going to see this as the Mark's biography of Jesus progresses. Some people see Jesus and they hear his teaching. They fall down and they literally worship him on the spot. Some people hear Jesus, and they are compelled to follow him like we saw in the disciples last week, last week. Some are eager to be his disciples and learn more and then even go out and teach 
with Jesus. But on the other hand, there are those who do not do that. They, they recognize his authority. And you know their first response? That guy's got a demon. Or worse still, some say, we have to kill him. But one thing never happens. It never happens in the Gospels. Nobody ever is indifferent to Jesus. Nobody is apathetic to Jesus. Nobody just eh, shrugs their shoulders at Jesus in his authority. And those in this synagogue on this day, on the Sabbath, 2,000 some years ago, they hear Jesus, hear his authority as if God is speaking directly to them. And the only thing they cannot be is in Different. One who speaks with this level of authority either has to be ignored, or sorry, cannot be ignored. They have to consider the full weight of his teaching. C.S. Lewis, I think he put this brilliantly. Many of you have probably heard this before, but in Mere Christianity, which is out on our book table, I encourage anybody who wants to read that book and is just asking questions about Christianity to pick it up. It comes from Mere Christianity. But Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity this. A man who is merely a man... And said the sort of things Jesus said would not simply be a good teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Jesus is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is the Lord of the universe who came 2,000 years ago and spoke in this synagogue in the outskirts of Galilee. And if that's the case, that Jesus is the authority of heaven and earth, and the last thing you can do to him is shrug your shoulders and be indifferent and apathetic. And I think we can see this difference in the level of teaching of Jesus. We, we even see this today. Compare Jesus to any other teacher, right? People throughout our time have either embraced the message of Jesus or they felt the need to explain his teachings away. And let me give you an example of this. I was uh, recently looking through the archives of National Geographic and Time magazine, and I just searched the words Jesus, and in there, you see all of these headlines going throughout the last 20 or 30 years. Time, in 1988, ran a cover story, Who Was Jesus? A startling new look at the age-old question. And then later on, Time, 2014, this was, uh, yeah, Time, 2014, Inside the Scholar's Debate, The Search for the Real Jesus. December 2016, National Geographic, The Jesus Mysteries. Ooh. <laughs> National Geographic, December 2017, The Search for the Real Jesus. May 2020, Time Magazine, What Did Jesus Really Say? See, 
our collective consciousness, we know in our collective consciousness that Jesus taught as one and acted as one who had unique authority, such that whether you love him or hate him, no matter what, you need to make an explanation one way or the other. Do you see that? I find it interesting. Nobody feels compelled to explain away or give an answer to the teachings of Buddha or Confucius or Nietzsche or Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Nobody feels like they have to search for who was the real Confucius. Why? Why? Time has never run a story about who was Rousseau, were his teachings really what he said they were? Why? Because Jesus had a unique teaching authority, not as the scribes, not like Buddha, not like Confucius, not like Nietzsche, not like your favorite philosopher, not like any other teacher in history. He had a unique authority not to simply talk about God or talk about the world, but to talk as God, about the crea- as the creator of the world. Jesus teaches as God, he speaks as God in the flesh, and we know in our collective conscience we have to do something about him. But the last thing we can do is be indifferent to him. I'll sum up this point with Tim Keller. Tim Keller nails it on the head. He says, when it comes to Jesus, either you'll have to kill him or you'll have to crown him. The one thing you can't do is say, what an interesting guy. You just can't do it. This Jesus enacts his authority in teaching in a way no one else had before. But notice, verse 23, Jesus exerts his authority in another way. Verse 23, we see he starts exerting his authority over the spiritual realm as well. So verse 23, Jesus is in the synagogue, and as he's teaching in the synagogue, a man is triggered by this teaching. And he starts to cry out because, we're told... He's lashing out because he has an unclean spirit. Verse 24, and he reaches and he says this, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. You see what's happening here? See, immediately as Jesus, as King, begins to teach, as soon as he begins to exercise his authority, all of a sudden the spiritual world responds, and Mark describes this unclean spirit. It can also be translated ungodly spirit or demon. That's what's going on. The biblical view of the world is that there is a spiritual world outside of what we just see, taste, touch, and smell. The creation is more than just the material universe. There are spiritual forces at work. In Genesis chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, the story where God visits this town, we're told two angels went into Sodom and Gomorrah. Two angels sent by God. In Joshua chapter 5, The angel, the commander of the Lord's army, goes before the people of God to help them overtake the Holy Land. The prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel, they see these marvelous heavenly beings called seraphim and cherubim. And they're described in almost undescribable fashion. At the birth of Jesus, shepherds are out in the field and they're watching their flocks in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, this host of heavenly beings are crying out, glory to God in the highest. Jesus himself describes God as a most pure spirit, one who doesn't have a body. You can't see him. You can't taste God. You can't touch God. I don't know why you want to taste God. But he's not a material substance like us. 
And then we read there are these other spiritual beings as well. Paul writes about them in Ephesians chapter 6. These are spiritual beings that are not clothed in light on the side of good, part of God's kingdom. Instead, Paul writes about these ones and says that we as Christians do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And over these spiritual forces, there's one who rules and reigns, over them, Jesus, in his teaching in John chapter 12, calls this one, Satan, the ruler of this world. Two weeks ago, we talked extensively about what it meant that Jesus was the better Adam. Because Adam and Eve, they were tempted by the prince of this world. They were tempted by Satan himself. And in succumbing to that temptation, the ramifications for themselves personally were devastating. They were now subject to death. They were condemned by God under his wrath, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of humankind. That's how we stand now under Adam. But you also see that the whole world, the whole cosmos is turned upside down. And now there's a fundamental order to the universe where Satan really does have some measure of authority and control over this universe, such that Satan is the predominant influence on people's ideals, opinions, goals, hopes, views, philosophies, and spiritual lives. In a real way, Satan has become the ruler of this world. And now, I know immediately as I say that, some of you, if you were anything like me, are immediately skeptical of hearing that, are you saying that there are invisible beings, angels and demons, that have some sort of influence over our world? Is that what Jesus is teaching here? And those are really good questions. I have those same kind of questions myself. And by way of dialogue, let me ask you this. Just as you consider that question. When you consider the Newtown shootings in 2012, remember? Newtown shootings... 20 people dead, 20 children, 6 adults, all in a local elementary school. When you consider the precipitous rise in racist ideologies throughout the United States, or when you consider that fentanyl is now the leading cause of death among 18 to 45-year-olds, or when you consider and think about the 15,000 to 50,000, these are just estimates, by the way, that number of women that are now trafficked each year sexually in the United States, when we think of those things and we witness those evils, I want you to consider this. Oftentimes we witness those things and our conversations immediately go to mental health and gun legislation and hate speech legislation and how we eradicate human exploitation. And don't get me wrong, those are good things to talk about. Those are necessary conversations to have. But is it possible that there is something more going on than just merely what we see materially with our own two eyes? Is it possible that behind the evil in the world is an evil one? I've said this before, you may not think about the kingdom of darkness you may not think about Satan, but I promise you this, he thinks about you. And to not take it seriously is to not take the Bible seriously, and it's definitely not to take Jesus seriously. 
So here's Jesus. He's the king of the kingdom of God in a confrontation with this ungodly spirit. And right away, the ungodly spirit, spirit realizes, yeah, this is the superior power. Because in verse 24, you can see it again. Jesus' response is pretty simple. Jesus in verse 24 simply says, uh, after, after the spirit says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Immediately after that, what's Jesus' way of dealing with this ungodly spirit? He merely speaks. He rebukes him and says, be silent and come out of him. And, and we miss this because in the ancient world, what they would have thought is in a spiritual battle, to use somebody's name, Jesus of Nazareth, Holy One of God, that was the demon's way of trying to exert control over Jesus by using his name. And all Jesus has to do is say, be silent, come out of him. And immediately it happens. You see the superior power of Jesus. And again, if you compare this to other ancient Near Eastern accounts of spiritual battle, this, this is completely of a different sort. When you think of these ancient accounts, think a lot like Lion King. Anybody here seen Lion King? Everybody's seen Lion King. If you haven't, that's your own fault, okay? <laughs> there is a battle between good and evil at the very end. Simba, Scar, right? And they are going at it, and it's tit for tat. There is bloodshed. Evil and good are going and exchanging blow for blow, and it looks like good is going to lose, it looks like Simba's going to lose at the very end. He's pinned on a cliff with Scar on top. But at the very last second, evil overco or good overcomes evil. Simba wins. The kingdom's restored. That's how all ancient Near Eastern spiritual battles go. But not here with Jesus. Jesus simply speaks, be silent. Come out of him. And the unclean spirit begins to be convulsed and cries out with a loud voice and he comes out of him. Jesus speaks and it's done. And the response of the people is what we would do. They rejoice. Verse 27, they were all amazed and they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. What is this? This is the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God coming to a world like ours, and this is the king dethroning the ruler of this world as the one with divine authority exerting control over everything in the world. We often think of good and evil as kind of equal and opposing forces, don't we? We, we think, you know, I was talking with Chad this last week, and he said that his mentor, Bill Vogler, he said... We often think of the world kind of on this organizational chart where you have God and Satan and then underneath them you have angels and then you have humans and then you have like turtles and tadpoles underneath them, right? <laughs> and the world can feel that way sometimes, right? Like evil and good are battling against each other and who's going to win out at the end. I experience this all the time. When I'm fighting with Hannah in my house, I'm on the side of good, she's on the side of evil. <laughs> and we're in this eternal struggle and... We're trying to overcome one another. And it seems like in our house, evil always wins. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> but here comes Jesus, and he completely throws over our view of the organizational chart of the universe. 
in Jesus bringing his kingdom, it's not a knockdown, fight out struggle for supremacy. It's not God, Satan, equal opposing forces, but it's God. God is supreme. Jesus is Lord. Jesus commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And every other creature falls under his rule and authority, and all stand amazed at the power and downfall of the evil one. You're going to question my parenting skills here, but we're reading Harry Potter before we go to bed now. And you know, the first, uh, the first issue of Harry Potter, Voldemort is this king of darkness. You don't know enough about him, right? He's just always referred to as the one whose name shall not be named, or you know who. And in the opening chapters, there's these whispers on the streets of England. People are saying, did it really happen? Did you hear? Did, did that little boy really overtake you know who, the one who shouldn't be named? And is it true that his kingdom is actually being pushed back? Has he, no, whose name who should not be mentioned, really been defeated? Friends, yes, he has. The whispers that happened in the synagogue then are going to one day be in an eternal shout as every knee and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He is supreme over heaven and earth. You know who has been defeated and the celebration has become. And on a personal level, look to the depths of where Jesus goes in his very first interaction. Jesus does not go to the powerful, to the influential. He goes to a tumble-down synagogue in Capernaum in the region of Galilee for this one man. Friends, no matter how deep your sin entangles you in its claws, no matter how dark your world may seem, no matter how hopeless you may feel, no matter how far the ruler of this world pursues you, Jesus, the king of the kingdom of God, will pursue you further. He will pursue you further. Jesus exerts his authority in teaching over the spiritual realm, and lastly, he exerts his authority over sickness and death itself. Verse 29 all, uh, we see that Jesus leaves the synagogue. He goes to Simon and Andrew's house, and Simon's mother is laying in sick. She has a fever, which a fever then could have meant her life. So she's sick in bed with this fever. And in verse 31, Jesus came to her, took her by the hand, and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. And then in verse 33, we hear, that the Sabbath, this day, is coming to a close. The first day of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven is coming to a close. And Mark tells us that as the sun goes down, the whole city was gathered together at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases. He cast out demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. A powerful authoritative teaching. Demons are cast out and the throne of Satan is destroyed. The sick and those near to death are healed and restored. Jesus has authority over things physical, over things invisible, over heaven, over earth, over every realm of life. And on this one day, the kingdom of God came in full display. Oh, and the one commonality in all of these accounts, the thing that I love is, did you notice that at every turn of Jesus exerting his authority 
of the kingdom of God. He does not do so to exalt himself, but in order to redeem and free captives who are prisoners to the prince of this world. Do you see that? Notice at every turn, Jesus silences these demons. That's a, that's a funny way uh, of describing this, right? The demons know who Jesus is. And Jesus says, don't speak. And it says, because they knew him. It's as if Jesus is saying, you see my authority now. You see my authority now. You see my power now. But the full display of my authority is still to come. The place where you will see my authority most clearly, most distinctly, is when I lay down my life on a cross. That is where my authority lies in full. That's where the display of my authority is coming. And at that place, I will redeem and free captives perfectly and finally. Notice, the demons know him, but the ultimate display is yet to come. And when Jesus uses his authority, he uses it in full to lay his life down. Jesus uses his power to die, to set captives free and to bring the kingdom of God to free those who are stuck in darkness. I'll close with this. The one thing I see in this, I, I, I was uh, talking with Reed, who's uh, our youth intern and our youth director, a youth assistant. He does a lot of things. <laughs> and he was talking about how in these scenes, what he sees is the story of the return of the king by, by uh, Tolkien. And at the very last scene of that book, in the return of the king, Aragorn is crowned as king of Gondor and Gandalf shouts, as soon as he's putting the crown on his head, he shouts, now comes the days of the king. And Aragorn goes out among his subjects and all of a sudden, everybody starts to bow down to him. And the hobbits are the only ones left and they're about to bow down, but Aragorn stops them and says, sirs, you bow to no one. And instead, Aragorn, the newly crowned king, bows down and lays down before the hobbits. You are a hobbit. And the king of the kingdom of God lays down his life for you. That is the good news of the kingdom of God. That this king comes with authority and he uses it to die, to redeem those who are weak, who are sinful, who are despised, those who are marginalized and oppressed. Any of those here? Frederick Nietzsche, he was a philosopher in the 19th century, adamant opponent of Christianity. And he despised Christianity because he said, Christianity, look who it exalts. It exalts the weak. It exalts the insecure. It exalts the sick. It exalts the broken. That's not how we will recapture this world with the whole force of human power. And you know what I say to that? Amen. Because that's the kind of king that we need. The king of the weak, the king of the broken, the king of the sick, the king of the hobbits. That's the kingdom of God. And Jesus, in order to illustrate the beauty and the love of his kingdom as the king, gave us this meal. Jesus told us that as we eat this bread, what we do is we're not just feasting on bread. We're feasting 
on the king himself, spiritually, to be sure. But Jesus wants us to be present with us. He wants to be present and reign with us in such a way that we can taste, we can touch, and we can see him, even though he's in heaven. And Jesus also said that this cup and this wine that we're about to drink, that this is symbolic of his blood shed on the cross, of him laying down his life as the king of heaven and earth. And so on the night he was betrayed, Jesus was sitting with his disciples, <laughs> followers of his who were called into his kingdom. And Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And in like manner, after his disciples had finished eating, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup, this is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for the remission of all your sins, past, present, and future. And Jesus said that as often as we eat this bread, and as often as we drink this cup, that we proclaim his death until he comes to bring his kingdom in full. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a hobbit, if you realize that you are broken, you are weak, you are sinful, and you need a savior king who will lay down his life for you, come and feast. This is the feast of the kingdom of God. It's the foretaste of the kingdom to come. If that's not you this morning, then you need to embrace the king. There's just no other way about it. Jesus has authority over heaven and earth, and he's calling you to repent and believe in the good news. Now, as we take communion, one thing to note is we have wine and juice up here, and wine is going to be in the white trays. Juice is going to be in the gold trays. We also have gluten-free options for bread. I'd like to invite our ushers forward and our elders forward who are going to be serving communion. And as they do, we're going to pray, and then we're going to be released and partake of the communion meal together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful story, this true story of the king who left his throne above, so infinite, so free as grace, and laid down his life, poured out his life and his blood to redeem captives to the prince of darkness. And God, we see the authority of Jesus. We see his goodness. We see the kind of kingdom that he's ushered in. And God, we want to taste that. We want to experience that this morning. And we want to taste and see and know that you are good. We pray that you would use these elements, this bread, this wine, in order to show us a glimpse of your coming kingdom. And God, we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.